Hey everybody, welcome to The Highlight Show. This is a show within our show where we sit down and talk to people doing really cool stuff. It could be someone starting a restaurant, it could be a youth group, it could be somebody who has just gone through something hard and has a really cool story to tell. We sit down with them, we pick their brains, and we glean what life lessons we can learn from their journey. Give it a listen. Edit all of this and get things taken care yeah. of. Um, all right, well, welcome everyone back for our second round of Inkle Do highlights. Um, obviously, I'm AJ. Brandon's going to be off mic today. He's kind of keeping us company and keeping an eye on us. But we are joined by a special guest, Pastor Tim Wright. If you'd go ahead and uh, say hello and introduce yourself a little bit to the people for us. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Tim Wright, and uh, I am a Lutheran pastor have been for 35 years. Uh, all of my work here done in Phoenix, Arizona, but I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, went to youth group there in my church, went to seminary there. And uh, then my first call was down here in Arizona. This is where I did my student pastor work as well. So I've been here a long time. Yep, 36 years. Excellent. We are a city and state largely built on transplants, but it's yes. always nice when, they, when you come in and make it your home. Uh, so, which, which which church are you pastor at at this point? So right now I'm the pastor at Community of Grace Lutheran Church in Peoria, Arizona. And that's a church that I started um, almost 15 years ago now. I was at a large Lutheran church called Community Church of Joy. And 15 years ago they decided to start a new church. And so I took a group of people with us. It wasn't a church split. It was an intentional church plant. And, uh, and so we started the church 15 years ago, went from a big campus, over 40-acre campus, multi-million dollar campus, yeah. to a school with a gymnasium, what we called a Sanctu Gymnicafatorium. And, uh, and so it was quite a, a culture shift, learning how to do a different kind of church after being in really high-quality facilities down to a school. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what has been both in your experience at a really large church yep. and then now kind of starting from the ground up over the yep. course of these 15 years at this yep. much smaller campus, what have been kind of your experiences of kind of the pros and cons of both of those situations? Well, every size church has its pros and cons. Oh, absolutely. And so large churches like the one I was at, Community Church of Joy, uh, we, we were about 4,000 people in attendance on a weekend. You can be a seven-day-a-week church, and you've got uh, the resources to do uh, excellent programming for children, for youth, for adults, for seniors. Uh, you've got the facilities to do all of that. Um, what you can miss with that, and though we worked hard at it, is a more personal touch. Um, you, you're not going to get to go up and chat with the pastor all the time, for example. Right. There's 4, so, people, yeah, that line can be a little right. So the church I'm at now, you know, we could average, say, 600 people in worship. But people have access to me. You know, on Sunday mornings, I can go out and greet a lot of people. Um, we were able to know each other better. But you don't have the same kind of resources right. to build multi, multi-million dollar facilities. Now, we've got a new campus, and it's a nice campus, but... You know, we have to make certain compromises. You can't build that big rock and youth center. Right. Uh, you, you have to be careful of staffing. So you just have to think differently. Um, and I loved them both. Uh, if you were to say, which would you choose? It's like, which child would I choose? I, you just don't do that. I loved them both. 
Well, and with ministry, it's always kind of one of those things when people ask you, what would you choose? It's like, well, if I'm the one choosing, I'm probably doing something wrong. Yeah. It, but so where does God want me at this point? That's right. And I feel like the speaking of resources, like I think a lot of times people instantly click in on the, oh, yeah, with that many fewer families, the financial resources and everything. But there's also the very real human resources yes. in terms of just that pool of people you have That's to pull right. from to help build your programs and to help keep things where yep. you want them to be. And the world has changed a lot in the last 35 years. You're, you're, you know, people are working hard and oftentimes it's moms and dads are working. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the days of, of having lots of volunteers with a lot of time is, is very different. Uh, we know that, that patterns of worship have changed dramatically. Uh, it used to be that uh, you were your best attenders came three to four times a month. Now your best attenders come once every six weeks. So that's really changed dramatically. How church is done, the kind of contact you have. Uh, you know, in a place like Phoenix, maybe 18% of the population is in church on the weekend. So... Um, it's it's uh, it's a very different world, but that doesn't mean the world is in less need of God's grace. Probably more so. I was going to say that it is kind of how it works. The further we get away, the more we actually need it. Yep. Um, awesome. So, what would you say are some of the kind of key areas that you really need to focus your ministry in reaching out to these people? What are some of the areas where you feel like talking about that need for God? Mm -hmm. What are some of the areas where you really feel like either from your personal knowledge and background, you're uniquely equipped or just based purely on need, that whole idea of God equipping the called rather than calling the equipped where I, I don't know how, but I need to figure out how to do it. Sure. I think one of the big changes for me over the last several years and this is one of the changes from a big church to a medium-sized church is uh, the recognition that people are coming to worship less and so if if people expect or churches expect you're going to create spiritual giants once every six weeks for an hour uh, we're not going to change the world that way right people spend more time every day drinking their cup of coffee than they do thinking about the things of God and and so we, we sometimes wonder why are Christians so frustrated with their faith? Well, some of that has to do with just time investment. So uh, one of the things we've always known, but we lost our way the last 60 years, is that faith takes place first and foremost in the home. And uh, we have all the research, always have had, that um, the, the number one influencer in a child's life for faith is mom. Number two is dad. And they're very, very close, but they do it differently. But the other thing is that if children go to worship with their parents, so go to big people worship, they are more likely to go to church as adults, far more likely. However, one of the movements of, say, a lot of large churches, and I was a part of that, is that we separated kids into Sunday school. And there are a lot of really good reasons for that, a lot of good reasons. But there were some unintended consequences to that. And um, so, you know, I was in a big church where we said there are the reason why we don't want kids in worship is because at that point we were we had 60 percent of our people were from a non-church going background. So when they come to church for the first time, we want to make sure we've removed distractions, so to speak. 
And kids who've never been to church don't know how to act in church. Their parents don't know how to act in church. So we want to give the kids this great experience of their own. And if the parents didn't necessarily like the worship service, their kids will say, we're coming back, Mom and Dad. Um, And that's great. However, uh, it doesn't necessarily build sticky faith, which is kind of the word today. And so we've really been working hard at our church. We, We got rid of Sunday school. Kids are in worship with their parents. We've done things to make the service friendly to kids. Um, there are a lot of things we still need to be doing yet in terms of creating more uh, uh, multi-generational opportunities at worship, I- at church. Um, and we talk about it all the time. But um, so I, I think that's one of the trends that, uh, you know, some people like to say we've been outsourcing faith development for our children for far too long. And you, you yeah, yes. And you just can't. You can't build dynamic followers of Jesus if it's not happening in the home. And, um, and so, our, you know, our strategy is um, to, you know, it starts in the home in partnership with the church out into the world. And that's really the third component. We don't exist for ourselves. And if we're not out there having a positive impact on the world, uh, you know, whether it's helping our neighbors or it's dealing with some of these that have now become political issues but are really human issues like climate change or like, um, what's happening at our borders, um, the gospel has to say something to that. And to peel away the political overtones uh, is really difficult for a lot of Christians today, left and right. I was going to, so going along with that, one of the things that I've noticed popping up in a lot of the sort of Catholic young adult conversations and stuff is this idea of what does it mean to be a Catholic or a Christian in America versus being an American Christian. Yes, that's right. And I do feel like that's one of the big problems is that we have come to primarily identify ourselves by political party. Right. And then we try and twist whatever our beliefs are to match with one party rather than the other. I always love when I hear people say, well, you know, obviously as a person of faith, you have to vote for this person. That's right. Tell me more. I would love to hear about how this person perfectly lives out the call of Jesus Christ. And then, once you convince me of that, I'm on board. We are we are always, always followers of Jesus first. And that should always set the agenda for what our beliefs are, our values are, what politicians we support or don't support. The challenge for us in our country is we get two choices. And... And, um, you know, it served us well for a while, but wow, what we have now are two-party systems where they've both gone to the extremes and you can't speak to the middle, which is probably where most people are. Um, and, and, of course, we've seen in the last several elections, uh, the progressive Christians really align themselves with the Democrats right now. Uh, the really far-right Christians align themselves with really conservative uh, Republicans. And... and uh, as we saw with our progressive friends in the Clinton years, and as we're seeing with our Republican friends, Christian friends, uh, in the Trump years, we find ourselves really compromising ourselves for the sake of politics. We, we get this idea of radicalization. Like, well, now that I've cast this vote, obviously I have to spend the rest of my life proving that <laughs> That's correct. Exactly, so I can't yes. acknowledge any mistakes, right. which That's- is on a individual level that's so removed from what it would possibly be to grow closer to Christ 
Oh, man. I got to be careful, though, because I can talk about <laughs> that stuff for years. Oh, it's your podcast. Well, it's true, but <laughs> unfortunately, I'm not sure we'll be able to have you on a, on a weekly basis yeah. to just keep hashing it out. So I want to make sure we hit. Um, you have a specific knowledge that a lot of people don't have in terms of kind of the and something that I'm sure would shock a lot of people who believe in this false dichotomy between faith and reason or mm-hmm. faith and science. Right. But you have a great deal of knowledge okay. on kind of the neuroscience, yes. the, the brain sciences. How do, how, first of all, how did you kind of come into that knowledge? What made yep. you decide to pursue that? Yep. And then also, how have you seen that work with and at times kind of conflict with? Uh, well, let me start broad strokes. And because uh, I, I was reading in a book the other day, it was written by a Christian man about science. And um, how does the Bible speak about creation? How does science speak about creation? And, and, and both the science world and the religion world have tried to, to make these things clash, and they don't. And um, uh, part of what this scientist was saying, and, and I'm using my own words, but that in a sense look at the Bible and science as two, two books that God has given to us to understand the world. And the Bible speaks meaning and purpose and about God and God's grace and God's action in the world. Science is kind of how did God do it? Right. And they don't conflict and they don't need to conflict. Um, and, um, you know, when we have the problems is when uh, with uh, Galileo and others, you know, their science said the, the sun or the earth revolves around the sun and they no, no, it's the other way around. And, you know, for years the church argued otherwise right. or the church argued the world was flat in spite of science, well, th- then you have to recalibrate. And that's because we have taken the Bible and tried to make it a scientific book. It is not that. Uh, so science can be a valuable tool, obviously. We're, we're, most of us are still alive today because of science. So, so years ago, when we were first starting the church I'm at now, uh, I came across a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. Written by a guy now, his name is David Murrow, he's a good friend of mine now. And the book had just come out, and I invited him to come and speak to our Lutheran pastors, and then he spoke at our church. And he uh, held about eight or nine eggs in his hands, and he he spoke about boys and the boy crisis. And as he did so, he kept dropping eggs. And when he was done with his eight-minute sermon, he said, these eggs represent the number of boys who left the church during my sermon. And the stat is 70 to 90% of all boys will leave the Christian church in their teens and 20s, and most won't come back. Now, if that continues to happen for years to come, the church is dead. Um, and, and so that, for me, was a, a crisis. The bells went off. So I started doing research, and I came across Michael Gurian, who has written several New York Times bestselling books. He's a behavioral science scientist by trade. But he's been using for years brain science research to talk about the differences between males and females. We're equal, but we're different, and all the science says that. Culture may say something different, but the science says otherwise. And so one of the things that we know is that a boy's brain is wired to learn differently than a girl's brain. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, we recognized that the girls weren't getting a fair shake at school. And so collectively, our country, with a $100 million invested by the government, 
worked to get girls caught up. What most people don't know is that in 1982, girls caught up and then passed boys, and boys have fallen behind farther and far, farther, further and further every year in every area of school from preschool all the way through graduate school. Um, young adult men make less money today than young adult women. Even though there's always this talk about that pay gap, young adult men make less money than young adult women because we're less educated and because the job market is better suited to the way a female brain is wired. We've gone more relational uh, and more verbal, and guys are not as strong in that. So as I started working, uh, reading Gurian's stuff, uh, I wrote him an email and said, would you help us as a church do a better job of reaching our boys and our girls using brain science research? Never expected to hear back from him. He's a New York Times bestselling author, for heaven's sake. Wrote me the next day, and the long and short of it is I hired him for a while to be a consultant. Then we became friends, and now we are partners, and we do, uh, we do a weekly podcast called The Wonder of Parenting. Available on all major platforms. Yes, Wonder of Parenting, Wonder If I might, you certainly uh, may. And, and uh, I will not be edited. Yeah, and uh, we do a a, a a seminar called Helping Boys Thrive, or one called Helping Christian Boys Thrive, and which is really looking at the crisis that boys are in now. Um, one of the things that's often asked is, well, well wait a minute, uh, what about girls? And um, first of all, it's not a zero sum game. Um, and it's not that we don't care about girls, but there are all kinds of organizations and government agencies working on the issues of girls and women. Very few, if any, working on boys. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, when I first, uh, when we first did our Helping Boys Thrive Summit here in Phoenix, uh, I got in contact with a friend of mine in the government, uh, and the government was going to help sponsor this event through some grants. So he brought some of his coworkers with him, all of them women, surprisingly, but they knew that there was a boy crisis. So good on them, because a lot of people don't realize that. But they were all from various uh, departments in the government working on girls' and women's issues. So I pulled them aside. I said, is there any government department that works on boys' issues or men's issues? And he said, no, not one. And then he said, and then he said, oh, there is one. The corrections department. And that's true of our federal government as well. Yes. yes Second example, uh, when um, President Obama was in office, one of the first things that he did was he created a White House Council on Girls and Women. And uh, when he was signing it into law or whatever he was doing, he just said, we're, we're never going to allow our girls uh, to go backwards again or to be treated unequally. Absolutely. Thumbs up. So he invited then a number of people, including Michael Gurian, uh, Warren Farrell, who used to sit on the board of the National Organization of Women, but is a big boy advocate, uh, a bunch of these men and women who know that there's a boy crisis to create a White House Council for Boys and Men. And the political pressure that he received and the backlash he received caused him to pull back and they never started it. And then when he did do um, the initiative for African-American boys, my brother's keeper, people took to the streets in protest. So, so for some reason, people are afraid that if we say boys are in crisis, that our girls will suffer. 
which is absolutely not true at all. If our boys are in crisis, our girls suffer, our country suffers, and the research says that when boys' grades go up, girls' grades go up. Well, it's it's almost like, and I'm just spitballing here, I might be completely off base, who knows? I'll let you know if you are. Please do. But it's almost like the human community is actually a community where what happens to one part of it might, I don't know, affect the others. And it might be crazy, maybe I'm way off base here, but I feel like that's kind of the problem here is that, again, like you said, the attempts to address the difficulties the girls and women are facing is absolutely good and right and should be happening. But why would that be exclusive? Or why does it need to be exclusive? So how, on a more kind of local level then, moving from federal government or even state and city governments, looking at it even just within your church or on the extremely micro level and, again, the most important level in the family, how do we address that? How do we make sure that, yes, we're continuing to build up our girls and women as they ought to be, but we're not ignoring the the boys? Because realistically, there is there's a finite amount of resources and there's a finite amount of time. So how do we go about it? Sure. Well, first of all, let, let's start with boys in school. Yes. As a teacher, right. I really want to. Okay. So changing... That storyline with boys falling behind, uh, most schools recognize that um, their honor societies are made up primarily of women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in college today, uh, it's now 60% female, 40% male. Um, There are easy changes that can be made in educating boys and girls uh, that don't take a lot of work or even money. Uh, let me just give you a couple. Uh, we know that that uh, boys are made up primarily of testosterone, which is an action chemical. All right, they've got to move. So if you ever see boys fidgeting, when a boy is fidgeting, so I'm going to uh, pick up Brandon's pen here. If, if you were going on and on and on in your classroom, oh my gosh, that's a yep, click too. You know, and I start clicking, right, uh, or wiggling my leg. Yeah. A teacher's primary response is, stop moving around, stop wiggling, pay attention. He is actually trying to re-engage through movement. Yes. And, and uh, female teachers in particular don't understand that. Some guys do, but, but even a lot of guys don't. So one of the things that we need to build into our classrooms to help boys is more movement. Um, give them brain breaks every 7 to 15 minutes. And that can be just as simple as stand up, stretch, and sit down again. Just re-engage the brain. Well, so for example, one of the things that they're really pushing us to do is start using stations. So instead of straight lecture, which for boys and girls is painful. As a teacher, it's painful to stand up and just talk for 45 minutes, wondering if they're hearing any of it. But so by using stations and then having it set up where after they're done at a station, even just the movement to another yes, group exactly. of desks, even right. just that small rotation. And so many teachers seem to be paranoid about losing this class time that's right. spent in movement. But it's like, well, but so yeah, if I spend 
three out of these 45 minutes in class moving? Isn't that better than me spending 15 of these 45 minutes in class with most of the class not engaged that's exactly in what we're doing? The, that's exactly the point, that you're going to get far more uh, in a 45-minute class by taking five to ten minutes out throughout the time. You, you have far more bang to your dollar. Um, boys are also, and, and these are generalizations, right? But, but the way that a boy's brain is wired is he's not as verbal, so he can't process words as quickly. He can't put his emotions with words as quickly. So in some schools where, uh, all right, tell me how you're feeling, it could take a boy anywhere from 30 minutes to two days to process that, where a girl can do it instantly because both sides of her brain are connected. She has far more white matter in her brain that processes. Guys are gray matter, which is blotchy and um, sort of uh, compartmentalized, exactly. Um, so rather than asking a boy, what are you feeling? It's what do you think? And even then, before asking a boy to speak out loud, because the one thing guys don't like is to look stupid. That's why we don't ask for directions. Um, if you're going to... If you, if you want a boy to respond and engage with a story, let's say, or with something, a couple of different ways to do that is, uh, here's the question. What do you think was happening in that story? What do you think they were thinking? What do you think they were feeling? Now, just write down a few words yeah. or draw a picture of it. Um, one of the things that Gurian tries to encourage teachers to do, um, because some boys just are not good at writing out big, long essays, have them do a comic book. And, and, and just, you know, use that as a way, if not as the final project, at least as a way to get the story in their brains. Because they're going to be far more uh, visually oriented. And then, you know, make sure let's put recess back into our schools uh, for boys and girls and teachers. No, I mean, like, so at our school, for example, I taught fifth grade for three years and then I moved up into junior high this past year. And one of the big shocks for me was in fifth grade, they had a 30 minute recess period. And then in sixth grade, they end up with, practically speaking, by the time they've got their stuff put away at their desks and everything and actually head out, and then they have to get lined back up to go to lunch, the sixth graders end up with about 15 minutes of recess. For the day. For the day. Yeah, yeah. Out of an eight-hour day, 15 minutes. That's not even legal in the workplace. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Well, that's... And if you think about in the workplace, some of the bad habits that people pick up to try and stretch it. For example, when I first started working, I very seriously considered picking up smoking cigarettes just because I saw, hey, people who are addicted to nicotine, they get a smoke break and I'm stuck back here behind the counter. That seems awful. Yeah. If I, so I ended up not doing that, fortunately. I waited much later in life to pick up my tobacco addiction with cigars and pipes and things like that. But yeah, it's just... The, the habits that we pick up, so where kids will either intentionally not use the restroom during those times because they know you have to let them go to the bathroom during class because you don't want to clean up the mess if you tell them no. And so they'll not go then, and so they're missing class time again. And in addition to that, realistically, they're junior high students. They don't leave or enter the classroom quickly and quietly, so everything is a production. Well, and think about that, that junior high boy, for example, who is entering into puberty and has seven to ten blasts of testosterone in his body erupting like a volcano all day long and we want him to sit quietly and listen to a lecture on the Iliad or whatever it might be um, it just ain't happening for that guy and you know girls some would say well it doesn't happen for girls either but girls their brains are wired 
where where they can uh, assimilate more verbally, sit longer periods of time, um, and there there are just things in the in, in the boy's body that make it hard. Uh, even you know, Green talks about just sitting for more than twelve minutes, your body just starts going bananas. Um, so all none of what I've said costs a dime, and can make all the difference in the world. And and what they found through research is that every strategy that helps boys succeed helps girls as well. Because girls can inhabit, because the way their brains are wired, girls can inhabit a, a, a boy's world, but boys can't inhabit a girl's world. So, you know, because they're highly verbal, they can move back and forth between verbal and nonverbal. Boys can't move back and forth into a verbal, nonverbal. Because our brains just aren't wired for it. Now, of course, we're generally, of course, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a verbal guy. Yes, same here, um, which is probably why we both have podcasts. That's right, podcasts, and we're educators of some sort, yeah, right? Absolutely. We're verbal guys. Um, but the average kid isn't, the average boy isn't a verbal guy. Right. So girls process, oh man, I, I, it's like two to three times more words a day than boys do. Now, when we talk about that, we mean they use them. They ingest them through reading and so on. Um, that's a major difference. Yeah. And, and one of the things we are, often talk about is how far girls have fallen behind boys in, say, the maths and the sciences. Um, but boys are even further behind in literature and literacy. And nobody raises the alarm bells in there. Nobody's saying we need to really work hard to get boys caught up in literacy, but there's a big movement to get girls caught up in the STEM movement. Well, and if anything, there almost seems to be kind of a tendency to be like, Oh, that's fine. Boys aren't supposed to be there, that kind of stuff. Right. And, and not just, and a lot of that comes from mm-hmm. It's like, well, literature is stupid. Why would I want to that's right. that? Well, so let's, let's talk about why that is. Yes. So let's take the average boy. Um, his brain development can be a year and a half to two and a half years behind that of a girl. So... He goes into preschool now, where for me, we never had preschools. And if they went to a nursery school, we wonder what was wrong with them. You know, we were out playing till kindergarten. And in kindergarten, we were just drawn stick figures. And it was basically learning how to relate. We didn't really start reading till first grade. Now we've got kids reading in preschool because they have to be able to read by kindergarten. And a boy's brain is not ready to do that. So he immediately starts falling behind a girl in preschool and reading. And when you're behind, then you start to dislike the thing you're behind in. And because it takes until probably junior high, high school for boys to get caught up, by the time boys reach third or fourth grade, they hate reading because they're so far behind and because we're too far ahead of them. In Finland, they don't even start boys in school until they're seven or eight years old. And they've got one of the best education systems in the world, partly because they start them later. They use a lot of uh, visual, a lot of movement, a lot of uh, getting their hands dirty in their education rather than just sitting and listening. So these are all the things that we're doing to our boys because it works for our girls. And again, what are you feeling? What's going on right now? Why are you sad? Why are you crying? Right, because that's, that's our attempt at be- right. behavioral. Right. And he, he right. just doesn't know. So if, if we would just put our boy glasses on for a, no money at all, we could get our boys caught up. But we have to care about it. Yeah. 
So what about on the at-home level? Because I, one of the things that you, know, you were talking about, the, the numbers in terms of attendance at worship and those kinds of things, and one of the things that I know, talking specifically in kind of the Catholic community, one of the things that's come up a lot is that those families where maybe mom takes the kids to mass but dad doesn't go. Right. Like, how can husbands and fathers make sure that they're doing everything they can to best encourage their sons to be the best that they can? All right. So it takes a man to build a boy into a man. If clapping wouldn't make such a huge <laughs> slide on my microphone right yeah. now. And that's not to dismiss at all the importance of moms. They're no. vital to the development of boys. Absolutely. But boys need good masculine energy to become men. We know that boys need to be trained to be men. That's why we've had rites of passage since the beginning. Yep. And they need dads or father figures. Um, so we, we want our dads to be involved. We want... All the research says that boys and girls who have dads do far better in life than those who don't. And there's, you can't argue that research. Um, and, and that's not in any way, shape, or form to demean these single moms who are doing their best. But even these single moms know they need a man in the life of their boys and their girls. They know that. So, so dads play an important role uh, in shaping the purpose of their sons, uh, in shaping the faith life of their sons. If if mom goes to church, um, there's like a 50-60% chance the kids will go. If dad goes to church, it's well over 90%. And that's not stereotype. That's not being sexist. That's just the research. And there's something about dad, particularly for the son, that if dad doesn't think this is important, I don't think it's important. If dad thinks this is important... I think this is important. Because if it's something that just mom does, then, okay, this is a thing for girls and kids. But now that I'm an adult man, and the earlier and earlier that boys are trying to assume that role as as a man, which, again, is heavily influenced by whether or not there is a father figure in the picture or not. But the, as they're taking that role on earlier and earlier, they become dismissive of it earlier and earlier. Like, I've noticed... If I want to really tick off the kids in my class, all I have to do to, is refer to them as children. Specifically that word. Kids is short enough and fast yeah. enough that it will yeah. slide past them. Yeah. But if I say something about, all right, children, you need to get focused. Yeah. At that point, it's like, what do you mean children? Yes. Yeah. Mr. Enfield, we're, we're like teens. We're yeah. young adults. No, you're actually not. Yeah. And... So there's this rush and this pressure to become the adult. And so without that example, I feel like that's such a yes. hugely limited factor. Yeah, so, so you know, for moms and dads, but because we're talking about dads, it's really important for dads to read to their boys and their girls, to read with them, and to encourage reading. Um, and again, if, if mom's doing the reading to the boys, but dad never reads, uh, th- that boy's going to really miss out on an important part of life. And in particular with the economy going to more verbal, a lot more reading, our boys just need to fall in love with reading again. They used to love reading, um, but we sort of, uh, again, because of all the things we talked about before, uh, they've lost their love for it. Um, uh, in fact, the reading skills of 17-year-old boys are worse than they were 20 years ago. So we're going behind. Um, 
The other thing that we want to do is, is uh, of course, fathers should take the lead in, in faith development. However, uh, and this is where we've got the same problem in the church that we have in our schools, where we have really uh, we've slanted so much to the brain of girls in our education without even knowing it, um, that we've created a crisis for boys. We've done the same in our church. Our churches are highly verbal. Uh, you got long 45 to 50-minute sermons. Um, some churches, they're really highly emotive in their worship. you got to feel stuff. For some guys, that's a big deal. Yeah. But for a lot of guys, uh, you know, who tend to be a bit more left brain in their, their thinking process, they need shorter sermons. They need more movement. They need variety in the worship service. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people will look at these big churches. Well, look at that. They've got a lot of young men going there. Yeah, they do. But most of them aren't at that church. Right, most young men aren't at that church. Most young families aren't at that church. Where are they? And uh, so, how do you how do you build a church where where men say, "I need to be there, and I need to be there with my kids," because it's become a girl thing. Well, and like you were saying, uh, going back to when you were talking about the reading and everything too, one of the things that has been a big kind of preaching point for me to families when they come in at parent teacher conferences is, you know, what dad isn't a good reader. So, still read in front of them because I think that's a lot of times when we think about examples, and this ties into everything, we think that we need to be showing them a perfect example. Right. Like, oh, I don't want my kid to see me struggling with reading because that's embarrassing. No, your kid struggles with reading. Yep. Let them see that that's okay and it doesn't stop you from doing it. And see, that's another really interesting brain science thing, too, that. Um, Boys have a harder time reading out loud than girls do. Doesn't mean they're bad readers. They could be really good readers in terms of just reading quietly to themselves. But again, because of the the verbal connection in their brain to their mouth, um, sometimes what we think may be bad reading skills is really just a brain thing where they could be great readers and love reading. And... and there's nothing wrong with reading comic books. It's reading, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, the Star Wars books, whatever it might be. If they're reading, they're reading. When I was teaching fifth grade, the standard homework assignment every night was you need to be reading for 20 minutes. Yes. And I told the parents, I was like, we have a really high 90 plus percent Hispanic population, a lot of them first generation and everything. And the parents were like, we don't have English books. No, no, you don't understand. I know your kid knows their alphabet. I know they know how to sound things out. I've seen that in class. That I can work on. If they're reading in Spanish, that's fine. If they're reading, if they're going on ESPN.com and reading yes. sports articles for 20 yes. minutes, I don't care what it is they're reading. I care that they're reading. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and you this... see, that's where you're brilliant. Because a, a lot of teachers would not allow that. They wouldn't count that as reading. Right? It's got to be the classics. And... Um, uh, and, and also, one of the things that we've done in our schools, uh, because we have these zero tolerance, no violence or anything, we have removed books that boys really like, mm-hmm. where there's there's uh, there can be violence. And, and we misunderstand and we think that if boys read violent books, they become violent. Boys don't read violent books to be violent. Boys read violent books because it's about good and evil. Yes. It's about saving the world. And that's why these stories uh, resonate with boys. There's a huge difference between a book that has violence and a book that glorifies violence. Exactly. Right. If we're showing them that, like, uh, in some of the action movies and things like that, where the the main character 
is supposed to be cool just because they can go and they can kill all of these people. Right. Okay, I agree with you. That's problematic and not something that children should be exposed to. If, on the other hand, what we're showing is, yeah, there are these villains who are behaving this way and a measure of violence is required in order to stop them, right? but the hero stops at that level of violence and is not excessive in it, that's an important lesson. Yes, it is. And that's what makes these... These are the iconic stories, right? The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, um, Harry Potter books. Um, These are all those iconic stories uh, that really tap particularly into boys and their quest to become men. And they know that to become a man, they have to face challenges. They have to know what their purpose is. Uh, They have to know that at some point they're going to sacrifice themselves which could mean, you know, getting more school to be better educated. Yep. It could mean working two jobs for a while to get the bills paid. Um, it will mean pouring myself into my kids. Yes. So those are the those are what those stories do. And, and if we eliminate those kinds of stories from our boys, we eliminate a primary way of teaching boys what purpose is for them. Absolutely. One of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton. I can't get yes. enough of the guy. And one of the things he talks about is, we don't have fairy tales about dragons to teach children that, that dragons exist. Every child knows that. Left to their own imaginations, they'll come up with that on their own. We have the fairy tales to teach them that the dragons can be defeated. Yes, that's brilliant. And I, I absolutely love that If you say that it. enough, you can say, you know, I've always said, and exactly. it becomes you. And then people start quoting you. Well, so you know, I, AJ used to say, I'm looking forward to that day. I already kind of have that going because I quote Chesterton so much to my kids and they can't remember his name, but they see my name and have to write it on their papers every day. So I'm really looking forward to the day when I go to like a high school graduation and one of the students I've taught is like, I had a teacher, Mr. Enfield, who always used to say that. I'm like, you know what? I'll take credit for that. I'm okay with it. It has been an absolute delight having you on. Thank you. Uh, I am hoping genuinely that we're able to bring you back with us again. I would love to. Uh, before we sign off, one of the things, like I mentioned, when we were getting ready, we always try and wrap things up with a life lesson that mm-hmm. we can have our listeners take away with them and try to implement in their own lives. Mm-hmm. What would you say from your vast experience, either as a pastor mm-hmm. or your knowledge of brain science as a husband and father, any of those kinds of things, what would be one thing you would want our listeners to take away with them? Uh, for me, it would be grace matters. Ooh. And life in our culture is lived far too much on performance. And self-esteem is based on the selfies that I can put up. And what we want to instill in our families, what we want to instill in each other, is that God's grace loves and accepts us as we are, believes the best in us, and draws the best out of us. And we're all in desperate need of that grace. And if we recognize that it's grace uh, and that we're all messy people in need of that grace, we might treat each other just a little bit more nicely. Excellent. Much appreciated. So as we close out here from Cabin Coffee out in the... This is Peoria, right? I don't know, actually. Ah, Oh, well, we'll call it the Peoria area then just to play it safe. Uh, I want to thank them for being our gracious hosts. Once again, always promoting the local economy. Really tasty cup of coffee. I just want to, once again, thank Pastor Tim Wright for coming out and joining us. Go find his podcast, wonderofparenting.com. Go there. 
you got a small sample of some of the wisdom he can share with you. Go there for more of it. And with that, we will say adieu. Thank you once again for listening to the Inkledoo podcast. If you enjoyed what we had to say on this and you think other people might as well, then we'd really appreciate it if you'd help us out. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of the social media profiles, and please make sure to go ahead and share this link and this episode on your own social media. Thank you so much. Thank you.